There are many things about which we could speak that would be important and vital to our Christian existence. There are other things that many times people get involved in religiously in terms of discussion that are vain and useless and have no bearing and no significance in our ability to live the Christian life. In fact, there are some things in which people can become engaged religiously in their conversations that can be counterproductive and opposed to living the Christian life. Paul was concerned about such things as he began his first epistle to Timothy, an epistle that we began last week to study and intend, Lord willing, to continue to study in an expository series of lessons. The admonition that that Paul gave to Timothy in the early verses of chapter 1 as we looked at last week, those admonitions, that charge, if you will, was that Timothy was to charge others to teach no other doctrine, verse 3. And that is, of course, a clear implication that there is a specific doctrine that one must adhere to. There is a specific doctrine that if we are preachers of the gospel, we must preach, and that there is no other doctrine. As we pointed out last time, it's reminiscent of what Paul wrote to the Galatian brethren and reminded them that though some were trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, there is but one gospel, that there is not another gospel. In verse 4, as we looked at last time, Paul's admonition was not to give heed to fables or endless genealogies that cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And that reminds us that there are things in which we can become involved, even in the Lord's church at times, that become divisive that are unnecessarily so. And that brethren have tragically divided and split congregations over matters that are simply matters of expediency, matters of judgment, that are not a part of the sound doctrine about which Paul speaks in this epistle and in so many other of his epistles and as is spoken of throughout the New Testament. The one gospel of Christ, the gospel that as we will see in our final verse of study tonight is the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to Paul's trust and it was almost breathtaking that such a glorious gospel should be committed to his trust and that he should have the blessed privilege of preaching that gospel. We should all feel the same. Not that all of us are preachers of the gospel, but we are all defenders of that gospel if we're Christians or should be. And what a blessed privilege it is to be a recipient of that gospel, to have obeyed that gospel, to live according to that gospel, and to have the blessed privilege of trying to lead others to obey that gospel. But that's verse 11 to which we'll come in just a little while. But the fables, the genealogies, the disputes that are contrary to godly edification, which is in faith or according to the faith, are to be avoided. And by way then of contrast to that, what is it that we are to be concerned about? As we begin with a new verse tonight, verse 5, and look through verse 11, we see a contrast with the word now or, or but the purpose of the commandment, verse 5, is love from a pure heart, from a pure conscience, and from sincere faith. What a beautiful summary statement that is of three things that 
that form a triad, if you will, of truth that must be of utmost importance to everyone who claims to be a child of God. What is the purpose of the commandment, and what is the commandment? Would it not basically represent the whole of Christianity? What is Christianity's goal? What is Christianity's purpose? Why are we here? What are we seeking to do? We are seeking to get others to respond in love to the one who first loved them, 1 John 4, 19, to respond in love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and to manifest a sincere or genuine faith. Those three words, love, conscience, and faith, are vitally important. The purpose of the commandment, the whole of the Christian faith, is love. Hopefully, that which motivates us to do all that we do is that supreme motivation, which is love. As we mentioned this morning, increase and abound in love, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian brethren. Love is the crowning characteristic of the Christian life. And when Paul, in another epistle, tells us to put on certain qualities using the clothing analogy, he caps it off or tops off the garment, ties it all together, the spiritual garment, with love. Above all these things in the Colossian letter, he said, put on love which is the bond of perfection, the bond of perfection, that which ties everything together. And so our whole purpose, according to what Paul writes to Timothy of the Christian life, is love, but love that springs from a heart that is pure. That word pure is the word uh, katharos, from which we might think of a catheter or catheterization, as we talk about from a medical Procedure. It is a term that is the idea of clearing out and cleaning out. The idea of that which is pure, that which is motivated by a pure heart, the biblical heart being the mind. And so we are motivated to love from a heart that is pure, made pure, purified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as a part of the Beatitudes, for they shall see God. And remember what John wrote about the necessity of that that purity of life, that purity of heart in 1 John, where he talked about the fact that those who, who understand and appreciate the goal of the Christian, that is to ultimately be able to, to see God, to see God, must purify himself. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 1 beginning. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. And then John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now listen to verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him. What hope? The hope of one day seeing God in Christ and being in the very presence of the deity whom we serve now. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Later on in this same first epistle to Timothy at chapter 6, At chapter 6, he talks about the 
command to be blessed and holy. And he talks about that blessed and holy potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If we're to serve that blessed and only potentate, the one to whom we give blessing and glory and honor, the only way to do that, the only way to live in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, verse 11, is by purifying our hearts. Pure heart from a good conscience. But again, the conscience has to be the conscience has to be indeed properly trained, doesn't it? You know, there are a great many people in our world today who live in good conscience, but their conscience has not been properly aligned or trained by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul was one who said of himself in Acts 23 and verse 1, I've lived in all good conscience until this day. Even when he persecuted the church, he did it in good conscience because he believed that he was doing the will of God. And he did it in good conscience. But then when he realized that indeed he was violating the will of God, he immediately made the change necessary and kept his conscience clear by doing immediately what he learned he needed to do to keep his conscience clean and to keep his heart and to purify his heart in obeying the gospel of Christ. And sincere faith in verse 5 is simply contrasted to a faith that may be an insincere or hypocritical faith, making sure that everything we do is from a pure motive, motivated by love, so that we can live truly in a good conscience. But then in verse 6, he says, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Now, Timothy was at Ephesus, and it may uh, indeed be, in fact, we would conclude that at Ephesus there were some in that congregation there at Ephesus that were guilty of the very thing that Paul mentions here in verse 6. They have strayed, turned aside to idle talk. Remember back at verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So as Paul penned this epistle, he's writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus, and when he says in verse 6, some have strayed and turned aside to idle talk, that must of necessity include some in the church there at Ephesus, we would believe. And what are they? How have they strayed? Verse 7 gives us some more information about that. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And the idea of desiring there is a constant thing. They constantly, they, they're always wanting to be teachers of the law. They want that privilege. They want that honor, as it were. And yet, they know not what they are teaching. And what is the law to which Paul refers here? The context indicates it is the law of Moses. And that gives us some insight into what kind of error, what kind of vain or idle talk they had turned to in doing so. Why would, why would matters of the law of Moses possibly be construed and described as being idle talk or vain talk? Well, it depends on what you're talking about when you are talking about the law of Moses. 
they obviously were teachers of the law or desired to be teachers of the law as those who were seeking to still bind parts of the law upon Christians. As we read elsewhere in the New Testament, was characteristic of these false teachers who were Judaistic in their thinking. And so Paul is saying they are desiring to be teachers of the law, a law that has been abrogated, a law that has been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14, a law that is no longer valid, and yet even in their desire to be teachers of it, they do not understand those things that are pertinent to the teaching of that law. They're not teaching the law properly. They're still seeking, obviously, from the context to buy part of it upon Christians at Ephesus. But in verse 8, Notice he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, is it the case here that Paul in verse 8 is saying that there's still some validity to the law of Moses from the standpoint of it being a law that we need to be keeping today? Of course not. We know clearly from Paul's teaching elsewhere that he taught just the opposite. In uh, the Roman epistle, for example, in uh, chapter 7, The Apostle Paul there gives a very clear and pertinent analogy between a woman who has a husband who's bound to the law of her husband so long as he uh, lives, but when the husband is dead, she's no longer bound to that law. And then he draws the analogy and says that we are dead to the law or delivered from the law. Verse 6 of Romans 7, but now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. But then in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, we get some insight into what Paul is obviously referring to here in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1 when he says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Incidentally, as we've talked about before, there's no question about the fact that in Romans 7, the law that Paul said we're dead to is the law that said what? You shall not covet. That's the Ten Commandments. We are dead to the Ten Commandments. We no longer keep the Ten Commandments. We are subject to the law of Christ. And of course... Everything that is included in the Ten Commandments is included in the new law except for the remembering of the Sabbath day and the keeping it holy. Everything that was there in the Ten Commandments has been amplified even under the new covenant where Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said of those by old time you shall not kill, but I say whoever hates his brother is guilty of murder. In other words, the new law is the new and better covenant. So when Paul said, I would have not known sin unless the law had taught me about sin, that gives us some insight into what he's obviously talking about here in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1. When he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how should we use the law of Moses today? Not as a law to which we are subject, but we use it to remind us, indeed, of how blessed we are to be under that new and better covenant, We look at the law of Moses and we realize it was a system that served its purpose, that pointed out the exceeding sinfulness of sin, that spoke of the Christ, obviously, those Old Testament books, but that indeed we should have been led to the Christ 
as a result of our proper understanding of the law of Moses, and it's good in that sense. It served its purpose, and that's what Paul is saying here. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Remember Romans 15, 4, Paul said, what? The things that were written aforetime, that's part of the law of Moses, obviously, that he had in mind. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Also, in those Old Testament books and a part of that law, we understand and appreciate how important it is for us not to fall after the same example of disobedience to which they succumbed, many of the Israelites. And so we can learn that. From the law, we've talked about this in Bible class uh, recently. You remember First uh, Corinthians chapter ten, uh, where in verse uh, six, after talking about the fact that those under the old covenant, many of them were God was not well pleased with them, and they fell in the wilderness because they violated the law. He says, "Now those things became our examples to the intent." that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and not become idolaters, etc., nor commit sexual immorality as some of them did, etc. He goes on. And then in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So back at 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8, when Paul says we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, he's explained one use of it in 1 Corinthians 10 in those verses we just cited. One use of it is to use it to show how they fell and remind ourselves of how they fell by violating God's law and that we should not fall after the same example of disobedience. By what? Disobeying the law of Moses? No, by disobeying the law of Christ. But the principle is there. And so there are so many things that the law of Moses uh, certainly uh, helped us to understand. And without that law, it would be difficult in the Old Testament books, obviously, to understand the new. So Paul is not affirming that we're still under the law of Moses. He's simply saying that if we properly understand that old law and use it properly, then there's much to be learned from it and to benefit from, especially not falling after the same example of disobedience as those did who served under that law. Then in verse 9, he goes on and elaborates a little bit and says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And then he goes on to list several sin or to list sin in several categories, for the ungodly and for sinners for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now back at verse 9 at the beginning he says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Paul is saying in effect, if everybody were righteous, we wouldn't need any law, would we? We wouldn't need any laws of the land if everybody just did what he should do. But the Roman letter reminds us there's none righteous, no, not one. In other words, we do fall short. And there are those who, who, uh, who disobey despite their best efforts and fall short. And all of us do fall short in our personal lives as Christians. But there are others, there are others who simply fly in the face of law and, uh, who have a, an attitude that is contrary to the will of God toward 
law. But we need law. But his point is, it's not made for a righteous person. If everybody did what he or she should, we wouldn't need it. But it is made for whom? For the lawless. First category he mentions, the lawless, the outlaws. There are those in our world today, and there were those in Paul's day, who were outlaws. That is, they had no regard whatsoever for the law. They were lawless, in other words, outlaws. They cared not for the law. They were determined they were not going to obey the law. And then he adds those who were insubordinate, those who were insubordinate, that is, who refused to submit to authority. Then those who were the ungodly, those who were the ungodly. There are those who who bristle at the very thought of anything that is religious or has a religious connotation to it, and they are ungodly in the sense that they want God removed from our lives. You think we live in such a time as that? How many efforts have you learned about or heard about or hear about on the news or whatever about those who are who would remove the name of God from every monument and every emblem that mentions God or anything religious. There is definitely a more aggressive agenda to do that in the time in which we live tonight than there has been at any other time in our lives. I think I can say that with confidence. We live in a world where there are those who are truly ungodly, those who are profane. The idea here, those who would who would profane that which is holy. The idea would be like a Gentile who would enter the, the temple area where he was not allowed and, and profane that area. That is, they have no regard for that which is holy. And then it is interesting that he includes murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. There are those who say that these terms are somewhat obscure and that they may be broader terms to include even striking uh, a parent. In fact, the English Standard Version uh, translates it striking a parent. But why should we conclude that actual murder of father and mother would be uh, excluded from this idea? Uh, Nero uh, had his own mother, uh, Agrippina, uh, murdered because she was interfering with his life. And so... He had her murdered. How many family members did Herod the Great kill? Several. Several family members. And so it is not unheard of that there have been those who have been guilty of patricide or matricide, and that's the, the primary meaning here, I think, based on what is said and what the original words indicate. Maybe we could expand it, certainly, and we should expand it, to understand that it is important for children to respect their parents and not to dishonor their parents, and that's abundantly taught in Scripture, and certainly not to strike their parents or to abuse their parents in any way at all. And then he mentions in verse 10, for fornicators. The law is for fornicators. All these different categories of sin, the Bible expresses these sins in so many ways and so clearly fornication is sexual immorality on a widespread basis it is not limited to adultery all all adultery is fornication but not all fornication is adultery because adultery involves one of 
uh, individuals, at least, who is married, whereas fornication uh, would not necessarily involve that, though it could and would be classified as fornication where one person is married and the sexual immorality that is involved there. But fornication would also include uh, homosexuality. It would include all sorts of sexual uh, sin. But he goes on to specify Though fornication would include homosexuality, in the next word, as the New King James translates it, sodomites, that is specifically a reference to homosexuality. Some translations mention abusers of themselves with men. And it comes from a word that is a uh, word that means men in bed. Literally, the, the joining of the word here is men in bed with men. And uh, at at a time when I was reading that uh, the commentator Adam Clark in his time said it was a word that was even too uh, too horrible, too ugly to even be mentioned, something too too horrific to be even discussed. Contrast that comment from that day and time with where we are today in that situation. In fact, just recently on in our last taping. Uh, session with Good News Today, a program that will be coming up in our commentary segment, we featured in that segment a story that I had come across because I got an alert from uh, uh, an email from the American Family Association encouraging you to go and see a two-minute video that the Allstate Insurance Company had put out, and I went to it and watched the two-minute video, and it simply depicts two men sitting on a sofa, one with his arm around the other, and in the lap of one is a little, precious little girl whom they had just adopted. And they were so excited about the fact that this little girl was now theirs. And some of the comments included a comment to the effect, we knew when we first saw her, she was ours. And comments of that nature. And of course, the American Family Association was was uh, publicizing this and encouraging Allstate uh, customers to let their agents know how upset they were with this. And they called upon Allstate to please stop promoting this kind of activity. And so, indeed, we are in a situation today that's a far cry from Adam Clark's time when he said this word translated sodomite shouldn't even be discussed and from the standpoint of it should be so horrific that it's too ugly to even talk about, but not today. Not today. It's not only talked about, it's touted as being something that we should be pleased about. And then he mentions kidnappers, men stealers. Kidnappers, literally the idea. Of course, some of the um, men stealing, some of this involved slavery at a certain period of time, when, which was a tragic time and a time that uh, Christianity did more to offset and to counter than anything ever has, and that over time Christianity has had more to do with eliminating the terrible uh, practice of slavery. But this is any kind of kidnapping or men-stealing, as the expression goes. And then he groups... The last two, liars and perjurers together as the sins of the tongue for those who are willing to lie and to whom truth 
means absolutely nothing. And he includes in the category of lying those who are perjurers, that is, those who will bear false witness. You go back to the Ten Commandments, you have that included. You shall not bear false witness. Perjury, uh, not having any qualms about saying whatever needs to be said in order to protect oneself. And in our political environment, even now, there's a great deal, uh, a great deal of discussion in the news, uh, and that has not been uh, unusual. That's been the case for various uh, things all along about those who are perjuring themselves, potentially, uh, lying in order to protect their position, etc. All of these things specifically mentioned, but then here's how he concludes the list. He says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, anything that is counter or contrary to sound doctrine, obviously, needs to be abhorred and avoided and taught against. And the word sound, which is used more than once in these evangelistic epistles to Timothy and Titus, the word sound is the word from which we get our word hygiene. And so it's the idea of healthful doctrine, the idea of doctrine that is wholesome, doctrine that is healthful, doctrine that will lead to a pure heart, a loving heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Back to verse 5. The sound doctrine, that is verse 11, according to the what? The glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. You can almost hear Paul's emotion as he writes those words about the gospel. And you can almost hear in those words, that, that deep humility and appreciation and gratitude that this gospel, the blessed gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God has been committed to my trust. I've been given the opportunity to preach it. And what a privilege that is. But let me ask you, should we all not be equally excited about that privilege if we're Christians tonight? We say, well, we're not all preachers. Yes, we are. We are in a sense, aren't we? In Acts 8 and verse 4, upon the first major persecution that arose against the church, those who were scattered abroad went everywhere, what? Preaching the word. Where were the apostles at that time? Still in Jerusalem, and they stayed there while others were scattered and went everywhere preaching and teaching the word. Anyone who's here tonight who's been blessed to hear and obey the glorious gospel of the blessed God has the privilege, yea, the obligation to take it to others by our lives and by our lips as we have that opportunity. But it is for certain, as we've said many times, you can't take to someone else what you have not taken in yourself for yourself. And so tonight, if you have not obeyed the glorious gospel of the blessed God, we plead with you to do that in the only way you can, by a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you've wandered, need to come home and confess that wandering and that sin in a way 
that is public because it's been committed in that public way, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.